Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Rob has written dozens of books with titles like The Red Sea Rules, 100 Bible Verses Everyone Should Know by Heart, and Then Sings My Soul. His newest book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America, is a biblical tour through American history and releases in February of 2020, but can be pre-ordered now. Visit robertjmorgan.com for more details and for free downloads related to this resource or pre-order from your favorite online retailer. And now, here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Hello, this is Robert J. Morgan talking about my book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America. Trying to explain American history without its Bible is like the Statue of Liberty without its pedestal. Had there been no Bible, there would be no America as we know it. We have a biblical foundation, though many revisionist historians are trying to erase the Bible's influence on our heritage. No eraser on earth can truly do that. The story is too deeply embedded and too amazingly wonderful. The British colonization of America began with the ill-fated Lost Colony on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, and then the dismal Jamestown experiment in the Tidewater region of Virginia. And then here came the pilgrims who landed on Cape Cod in 1620 and established the town of Plymouth. That paved the way, or to change the metaphor, that opened the floodgates to the great Puritan migration. Over the next 20 years, from 1620 to 1640, some of the best educated, most godly, and greatest men and women Britain ever produced came to the New World, being driven out of their own land by religious intolerance and persecution. These were not the tired, the poor, the huddled masses, the wretched refuge of England's shore. These were brilliant minds and noble hearts, gifted leaders and biblical expositors, liberty-loving congregations, the cream of the crop of British population. They all flowed into America. It happened because England's King James I had refused all of the demands of the Puritans except for one. He did agree with them to authorize a new translation of the Bible, later to be named for him the King James Version. But except for that, he had no time for the Puritans, and especially for the Separatists. These were the godly leaders who wanted to bring real reformation to the corrupt, state-supported Church of England. They wanted to get back to the Bible, back to biblical exposition in the pulpits, back to scriptural theology, back to holiness among the clergy. Many of these Puritans had been trained at Cambridge College, which was a hotbed of Puritan thinking. But King James I and then his son and successor, King Charles I, bitterly persecuted them. Between 1620 and 1640, a whopping 80,000 men, women, and children left England, driven out by persecution and by the monarchy. Some went to Ireland or the West Indies or Holland, but many of them followed their brothers, the pilgrims, to New England. They arrived in New England by the boatloads, and they founded the city of Boston. One of these Puritans was a lawyer, not a preacher, but a lawyer named John Winthrop. He was born in England in the late 1500s and attended the aforementioned Cambridge University. He married his sweetheart Mary, 
but she died. He married again, but his second wife also died in childbirth. He married a third time, and his new bride, Margaret, became pregnant just as the pressures on Winthrop were forcing him to flee the country. As a lawyer, he defended the Puritans, but at the risk of his life and reputation. He and Margaret thus endured a period of separation as he left for America while she stayed to have a baby. No one can fully understand the difficulty of that, but they agreed to keep their love and passion alive by devoting an hour every Monday afternoon and Friday afternoon to thinking about each other. Winthrop fled England with 700 other Puritans on a fleet of 11 ships that left on April 8, 1630. Winthrop was on the ship Arabella. Just before or during or maybe just after the voyage, Winthrop wrote a sermon. It has been called the most famous lay sermon in American history. The title of the sermon is A Model of Christian Charity, but we know it today as the City on a Hill Sermon. Winthrop cast a vision for the kind of society the Puritans envisioned in the New World. It was, in effect, a spiritual blueprint for a new nation. It was filled with Scripture. Here is a portion of it. The only way to provide for our posterity is to follow the counsel of Micah, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. For this end, we must be knit together in this work as one man. We must entertain each other in brotherly affection. We must be willing to abridge ourselves of superfluities, of the supply of the other's necessities. We must uphold a similar commerce together in all meekness, gentleness, patience, and liberality. We must delight in each other, make each other's conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our commission and community in this work as members of the same body. So shall we keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The Lord will be our God and delight to dwell among us as his own people and will command a blessing upon us in all our ways so that we shall see much more of his wisdom, power, goodness, and truth than formerly we have been acquainted with. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us, that ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies, when he shall make us a praise and glory that men shall say in succeeding generations, the Lord make it like that New England. For we must consider that we shall be a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. Beloved, there is now set before us life and good, death and evil, and that we are commanded this day to love the Lord our God and to love one another, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his ordinance and his laws, that we may live and be multiplied, and that the Lord our God may bless us in the land whither we go to possess it. That is a portion of Winthrop's famous City on a Hill speech. Well, in 1629, John Winthrop became the first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. These people were lovers of Christian education, and so they established America's first public school, the Boston Latin School, and the first college, Harvard, which was started for the training of ministers. It wasn't feasible for young ministerial students to return to Cambridge University in England, and so Harvard was established. Its motto was, Truth for Christ and the Church, and the college's key verse was John 8.32. 
and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. These Puritans could no longer function under the authority of the State Church of England, which they had fled. They had no bishop, they had no church structure, so each congregation was autonomous. Meeting houses were built in every town and village, and each congregation hired its own pastor. Thus, these churches came to be known as Congregationalists. The Puritans not only stressed church life and congregational worship, they emphasized the importance of living in a daily relationship with Christ, nurtured by private devotions and personal times in prayer and scripture. They learned to meditate on God's word when they arose in the morning and when they retired in the evening. They emphasized family devotions and neighborhood prayer meetings. Many of them kept journals and diaries. Puritan sermons tended to be published and spread abroad, and out of that came many pamphlets and books. I've already mentioned John Winthrop in his sermon about a city upon a hill, but let me mention two other great American Puritans. One of the greatest preachers who came to America was Thomas Hooker. He was born in Leicestershire, England in 1586, studied theology at Cambridge, and became one of the most popular and powerful preachers in England. But he was driven out of his native land and fled to America as part of the Great Puritan Migration. In 1633, he became the pastor of a small church near the present site of Cambridge, Massachusetts. His pulpit skills were extraordinary, and he has been called perhaps the greatest of the 17th century American preachers. Hooker believed in extending the right of vote to more people, and that put him at odds with some of his fellow Puritan leaders. In 1636, Hooker, his wife, his congregation of about a hundred, plus around 160 cattle, left Cambridge and Boston, migrating south to establish the city of Hartford. Here, on May 31, 1631, Hooker preached a midweek sermon from Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 13, which has been called, quote, among the most important sermons in colonial New England, unquote. A manuscript of the sermon does not exist, but one listener took notes in shorthand, recording 13 paragraphs that gave Hooker's key points, which includes this. The choice of public magistrates belongs to the people by God's own allowance. The privilege of election belongs to the people. It must not be exercised according to their humors, but according to the blessed will and law of God. They, the people, who have power to appoint officers and magistrates, it is in their power also to set the bonds and limits. The foundation of authority is laid firstly in the free consent of people. Hooker's concept of democracy, as expressed here, was considered radical in a world dominated by monarchs and emperors. While his sermon had to do with scriptural matters, many historians believe the ideas he expressed set the stage for Connecticut to adopt a new constitution the following January, which is known as the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut. This is considered the first written constitution to embody a democratic tone, and it became the model for constitutions in other colonies. Ultimately, it paved the way for the Constitution of the United States. That's why Connecticut is to this day known as the Constitution State. 
The fundamental orders of Connecticut represent the beginnings of democracy in America, and some have called this Puritan preacher the father of democracy, and his ideas were firmly rooted in the priesthood of the believers based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another great Puritan was John Eliot. He too was born in England and attended Cambridge. He came to Christ under the ministry of Thomas Hooker and emigrated to Boston where the Church of Roxbury hired him as pastor in 1632. He kept that job for 57 years. In 1646, Eliot, who was 42, grew burdened for nearby Native Americans and began studying Algonquin. It was a daunting task, especially because of the length of the words. Eliot persevered until he could speak the language well enough to preach with the help of an interpreter. A short time later, a number of Native Americans confessed Christ as Savior. The converts established their own village and named it Rejoicing. As time went by, other villages arose, and Eliot traveled up and down the coast, all the time maintaining his primary ministry as pastor of Roxbury. In a letter dated December 29, 1649, he wrote, I was not dry day or night from the third day of the week to the sixth, but so traveled. And at night I pulled off my boots, wrung out my stockings, put them on again, and so continued. And yet God stepped in and helped me. I considered 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Native American churches were planted in places like Plymouth, Cape Cod, Nantucket, and Martha's Vineyard. Eliot lived to see 14 praying villages between 2,500 and 4,000 Native Americans and 24 Native American preachers, all of this coming out of his ministry while he was still serving his church in Roxbury. The school he founded, Roxbury Latin School, is today the oldest school in continuous existence in North America. Eliot's most prodigious feat was the production of the first Bible published in America. The New Testament came out in 1661 and the Old Testament three years later. It's hard to imagine how Eliot accomplished such a thing, reducing a near-impossible language to writing, training Native Americans to read, and then translating the entire Bible for them. That is, as one scholar said, a work which excited the wonder and admiration of both hemispheres and has rendered his name ever memorable in the annals of literature and piety. While in his 80s, Eliot grew too weak to preach at his church in Roxbury, and so he asked the church to seek another pastor. I wonder why the Lord Jesus Christ lets me live, he said. He knows that I can now do nothing for him. But he sought a final work to do for Christ, and he heard of a youth who had fallen into the fire and been blinded. Eliot invited the church to live with him, devoting many hours to helping him memorize chapters of Scripture and learning to pray. Eliot was a man of prayer. When confronted with distressing news, he would say, Brethren, let us turn all of this into prayer. John Eliot passed away on May 21st, 1690, in his 86th year. His last words were, Welcome, joy, pray, pray, pray. Well, these three men and others like them, John Winthrop and Thomas Hooker and John Eliot, and the thousands of others who came from England in the Puritan migration, 
It represents the beginnings of life and democracy in America. This is the wonder of how this nation started. One historian wrote, this is sure. No religious experiment in the new world has had a more enduring impact on our nation's education, literature, sense of mission, church governance, ethical responsibility, and religious vision. Well, I hope you'll join us again next time. This is Robert J. Morgan. Please check out my resources at robertjmorgan.com. This podcast is produced by Clearly Media and Joshua Rowe. Music by Jordan Davis. Engineering and editing by Elijah Rowe. Until next time, the Lord bless you.